Welcome back to the U.S. Naval History Podcast. This is a mini-episode on the first Sumatran expedition, which was America's first military foray into Asia in response to the growing pirate threat in the area. If you're looking for a comprehensive step through of U.S. Naval History, the first 19 episodes of this podcast do that chronologically, and I recommend that you go back and listen to them if you haven't already. And as always, if you like this podcast, please share it with whoever you think might enjoy it. The background to the Sumatran expedition is that even before America became a country, the New England colonies had a very maritime-based economy. They fished, they whaled, they built ships, but most importantly, they traded. And it was in large part because of the restrictions on trade that Britain placed on her colonies, which caused the flame of rebellion to burn first and to burn brightest in these New England states. But it was also that dependence on trade that caused the former New England colonies, now states, to suffer the most after independence. Because as much as the trade restrictions of being part of the British Empire were stifling, being kept out of the broader British Empire's global trading system was even worse. And these former colonies, now states, immediately sunk into a very deep post-war depression, and New England by far suffered the worst. And so during these first decades of independence, the traders were desperate to find new markets to replace the traditional ones that they had lost trading with the British West Indies down in the Caribbean. One of the first places they looked was to the Pacific. The Empress of China went to trade with Canton in 1784, and then 1790, the Columbia returned to Boston as the first U.S. ship to circumnavigate the globe. But one of the most lucrative destinations for this newly freed New England trading class were the incredibly rich Spice Islands of Southeast Asia. And specifically, the trade between Sumatra and the United States was very profitable, given the lucrative spices to be found there in the East Indies. Uh, Because after all, they're not called the Spice Islands for nothing. On the basis of the spice trade, and in particular the pepper from Sumatra, almost unimaginable fortunes are made, the equivalent of tens and tens of billions of dollars today. The trading brig Raja and her captain, Jonathan Carnes, returned with the first cargo from the coast of Sumatra to the United States in 1799, made everybody involved a fortune. And from then on, the town of Salem, Massachusetts, came to absolutely dominate trade in Southeast Asia. And over the next 60 years, over 1,000 trips from Salem would make the journey to the Spice Islands and back, and they'd transport over 370 million pounds of pepper and transform Salem into one of the richest cities in the world because of it. The big problem, though, were the pirates. Because as famous as Sumatra was for its spices, it was just as famous for piracy. Sumatra is a densely populated island. It's the biggest island in what is today Indonesia, just west of Singapore. At the time, it was being very slowly, piece by piece, over the course of centuries, really, being variously colonized, conquered, assimilated, politically absorbed by the Dutch in various manners. But at this point... At least northern Sumatra was still largely independent, although politically fragmented into kingdoms, tribes, and princely states and sultanates, you know, somewhat loosely beholden to the Asich Sultanate, which nominally controlled northern Sumatra and a good chunk of the Malay Peninsula right across the Strait of Malacca as well. But as is the case with most governments in the pre-modern era, The central government often held a sort of power-sharing agreement with the local forces and didn't have complete control over what was going on inside its borders and how these local players interacted with each other and other countries outside of the official national borders. And so this combination of political fragmentation, 
lots of islands with their tiny bays and inlets and ports and rivers to pull in and to hide away in, and lots of trade attracted the absolutely natural thing, which is pirates. Because, after all, what is a merchant ship without a Navy escort other than a floating hole in the water full of very valuable things for the taking if you can catch it? A typical pirate MO in the East Indies, as the region was known, was for a group of small, fast, maneuverable outrigger sailboats with oars for extra speed and a few swivel guns mounted for firepower to emerge from a hidden inlet and race towards an unsuspecting East Indiaman trading ship, board it, and generally murder everybody on board and take the stuff. And you can see this exact same phenomena occurring for the exact same reasons in the Caribbean, West Indies, just a little bit earlier until state power developed enough to stamp it out. I did some pre-Panama Canal, pre-Suez Canal math, and the problem for the United States was that it is seven to eight times as far by sea from New England to Sumatra as it is from New England to the Caribbean. And as the country had learned fighting the Barbary pirates in the Mediterranean, it is really hard and really expensive to deal with piracy far from your shores. And it's almost always cheaper to just bribe the local powers that be to stamp out the problem if at all possible. And the Mediterranean was still only a third of the distance that it was to Sumatra. The piracy problem continued to fester, and the United States didn't really have the resources to deal with it for a few decades. But slowly, as the trading fleet expanded and the money that the trading fleet brought into the country helped finance a navy and expand state capacity to the point where on June 20th, 1831, Captain John Downes received orders from the Secretary of the Navy for a cruise to the Pacific. Captain Downes was promoted to Commodore for this and took control of the frigate USS Potomac from Norfolk, Virginia, to join the sloop Falmouth and the schooner Dolphin already on station in the Pacific. Although those two ships primarily kept to the west coast of North and South America to help deal with the pirate problem there. And so in short, there was essentially no real American naval presence in the Pacific up to this point. The Potomac was the U.S. Navy's newest frigate at 1,700 tons, 177 feet long. It was rated for 44 guns, but sort of as was typical of the American fashion, it was overloaded with 50 at the time and had a crew of 480 sailors and Marines. And because it took four months to get from the east coast of the United States to the Pacific, and that's if you were booking it, there wasn't really a viable way to do any sort of fine-grained command and control from Washington, D.C., and so the Secretary of the Navy's orders to Downes gave the sort of broad latitude and trust that marked most of the sorts of orders that captains were given back then. And they said, quote, You will on all occasions render to our citizens' vessels commerce and interests that assistance and protection to which they are lawfully entitled, end quote. And Downes was expected to serve both as a military officer, but also as a diplomat wherever he visited, and use his best judgment to support American citizens and interests in every port that he stopped at, along his way to the Pacific. The good news is that Commodore Downes was, by that time, a very experienced sailor who had begun his naval career at 16 when he joined his father, who was serving as a steward aboard the USS Constitution in 1800, and must have impressed the officers there enough to land a very competitive appointment as a midshipman, which is an officer in training, in 1802. And from there, he was assigned as a midshipman to the USS New York, and he sailed as part of the crew to the Barbary Coast, Uh, The second episode of this podcast is all about the Barbary Wars, and if you haven't listened to it, you should. But the long story short is that it was the United States' first major overseas expedition in response to the capture of American ships and the enslavement of their crews. 
In the Mediterranean, Midshipman Downes made an impression on Captain David Porter in combat, and Porter went on to become Downes' mentor. Downes sailed as Porter's first lieutenant during Porter's raiding campaign against British shipping in the Pacific during the War of 1812, and so he was generally familiar with the Pacific by the time that he was made Commodore of the very tiny Pacific Squadron, which now had heavy firepower to show the flag and back up the smaller Dolphin and Falmouth. And although piracy was just sort of known as a constant problem in the dense islands of Southeast Asia, the long planning for sending a strong frigate to the Pacific had begun without a particular piracy threat in mind. That all changed when just four months before the Potomac was scheduled to leave for the first leg of her voyage around the world. A spice trader named the Friendship rounded Cape Cod, returning from a voyage to the South China Sea, and brought with her a tale of piracy and of murder. Because in February of 1831, the Friendship arrived, as it had many times before, at the common trading port of Kuala Betu on the northwest coast of Sumatra to pick up a cargo of pepper. And the Friendship was the first American or European ship of the trading season to arrive, and in the intervening months since the last European trading ship had pulled away from Kuala Betu, the internal calculus of the trading village had clearly changed in some manner. And so while the captain of the Friendship was ashore attending the weighing of the pepper, armed melees came aboard the Friendship and stabbed the first officer, Charles Knight, killing him and two other seamen. And as those three men died on the deck, the other crew members did the smart thing and dove overboard and swam for their lives to the far shore, away from the village, while the melees plundered the ship. And so from shore, the captain of the Friendship and a couple of his officers and crew tried to get on their small boat and row back to take the Friendship, only to be chased away by three melee boats filled with nearly 50 men armed with knives and spears. And so the remaining men on the Friendship's crew managed to escape with a local trader named Poe Adam, who we'll come back to later in the story. And they traveled 25 miles to the nearby Mucky, which is another village, where they joined forces with three other American ships who were trading in that village. And the assault and the murder of a bunch of men was obviously a big deal, but it had to be solved with whatever private resources were on hand. Because there was no concept of a global navy. There was no SEAL Team 6 being flown into the rescue on 24 hours notice, there was no satellite call, no diplomat in the area. There was essentially no U.S. government presence handy. And any other country's warships in the area weren't likely to lift a finger to help because anything that decreased American presence in the area and willingness to trade in the area could only help their country's trade fleet. And after the local Raja named Shutdula accepted a cut of the silver and the opium from the plunder and refused American demands to return the friendship, it was clear that the animosity, at least towards Americans, was official policy and not a coordinated attack by some unsanctioned villagers. And so the next morning, the three ships opened fire on the pirates and the village's forts, and the French ship's captain manned a boarding party with three boats full of armed men to retake its ship. Uh, they did, and they found that the French ship had been deserted. And so with the three other ships, they sailed clear of the harbor for a nearby village for repairs. And there, they found the crowds cheering. Who's the great man now, Melee or American? How many American dead? How many Melee dead? All of which sounds like a little bit of historical schadenfreude, as the usual balance of power sounds like it got turned temporarily. As the Friendship's captain wrote later in his report, 
May the mistake under which they rest, that the Americans have not the power to chastise them, be corrected with all convenient dispatch. So the French ship made her way back to Salem on July 16th, and the story spread up and down the Atlantic coastline, and newspapers erupted in outrage, pretty understandably. And with what is no doubt a bit of self-interest in mind, the official report of the incident compiled by the captain from the ship's logs and testimonies of the crew made note that the pirate menace seemed to always target Americans and never, for example, the British, because the British maintained a very strong naval presence in the region and had a reputation for hunting down any threats to British commerce. And by contrast, only four American naval ships had ever been to Southeast Asia, most recently a brief visit by a sloop in 1826. And perhaps if there was a more regular American force in the area, Americans would get a little more respect, and the merchants wouldn't seem like quite such easy pickings. And this was the exact same problem which had caused the two Barbary Wars after independence, because as it turns out, the Union Jack was good for something other than a high tea tax after all. And so when the captain's report made its way to Washington, D.C. on August 9th, President Andrew Jackson moved with the prevailing national mood at the time and gave a new set of orders to Commodore Downes. Although I suspect, knowing the sort of president that Jackson was, that he would have been more than happy to do so, even without the public pressure. Downes is now ordered to show that the flag of the Union was not to be assaulted with impunity. Once he arrived, he was ordered to first investigate what happened, and then, if he decided that the friendship story of unprovoked murder and piracy proved true, to, quote, demand the Raja or other authorities at Kuala Batu restitution for the material loss and punishment of the murders. And if these talks, which were backed up by the barrel of a gun, failed, then Downos was given full authority to use those guns to, quote, destroy the boats and vessels of any kind engaged in piracy and the forts and dwellings near the scene of aggression, used for shelter and defense, and to give public information to the population there collected, that a full restitution is not speedily made, and forbearance exercised hereafter, from the like piracies and murders upon American citizens, other ships of war will soon be dispatched thither, and inflict more than ample punishment. End quote. And if all possible, he was ordered to capture and to bring the murderers back to the United States for what would no doubt be a quick trial and hanging. As one book on Andrew Jackson's presidency put it, negotiate first, but be willing to use force if necessary. Leave them worried about what might come next. And so, on August 24th, 1831, the USS Potomac put to sea with new orders to avenge the attack on the friendship. As Downis stopped on various ports on his way to Sumatra, he collected what intelligence he could about the local political conditions, and all of it seemed bad. Anyone he encountered who had spent any time in the area made the same reports that the natives were untrustworthy, vicious pirates, and, and Downus was advised that if he went ashore to go in force and be prepared for battle. And so Commodore Downus and his officers came up with a plan. If negotiation failed, they would send a landing party of 250 sailors and marines ashore to surround the small forts guarding the village to prevent the village's men from escaping into the jungle. And from this position of strength, Downes would then open a dialogue with the local strongman slash commander, known either as a Raja or a Hulubalang, depending on the source, for justice and compensation. The landing party began to drill very seriously with small arms under the stern eye of marine veterans, and morale was reported to be really high aboard the ship, because they were seen as executing a serious and an important mission, 
all of which is very exciting compared to the boredom that made up 99% of a sailor's career at sea. As the Potomac approached Sumatra, she disguised herself as a trading East Indiaman, hiding her guns and changing the rigging of her sails so that she didn't give away her presence. And finally, almost exactly a year after the original attack on the friendship, the Potomac's lookouts called Land Ho. They had spotted the coast of Sumatra for the first time. The Potomac made her way south along the coast, and two days later, on February 5th, 1832, she made her way towards the harbor at Kuala Batu under a Danish flag, with most of the sailors hiding below decks so as not to raise suspicions from the locals. One of the sailors recalled in his journal that, quote, every port being closed, the air that we breathed was close and stifled. The melted tar fell in drops along the deck and fairly boiled from the seams between the planks. Anchoring directly off of Kuala Batu, Commodore Downis sent a party towards the beach in a small boat dressed in civilian clothes to gather intelligence. As the small boat approached the shoreline, more than 200 armed men met the boat as it approached the surf line. Deciding that this represented a pretty good idea of the reception they could expect and acknowledging that discretion is sometimes the better part of valor, the boat crew decided to turn around. And so with the attitude of the local village pretty firmly established, Commodore Downes was in a bit of a conundrum. He was under orders to negotiate first, but it seemed far from clear that this would be possible to do without sacrificing anyone sent to do the actual negotiating, as the Americans conclusively found out what the Raja's position on Americans was. And so, negotiation would have to be done at the point of a gun. When it came down to it, Downus had no doubt that he had the firepower advantage against a group of men armed with a combination of old muskets, knives, spears, and a few light cannon. Downus ordered his men to begin preparing a landing force. He wrote, no demand of satisfaction was made previous to my landing, because I was satisfied, from what knowledge I already have of the character of the peoples, that no such demand would be answered, except only by refusal. So, with that, the landing was set for the dark hours before dawn, so that when the village awoke, they would discover themselves surrounded and unable to run. Down is emphasized to Lieutenant Shubrick, who led the landing party, that the village was to be given every opportunity give up the men who had attacked the friendship. And so at midnight, the crews lowered the boats into the water on the seaward side of the Potomac, and the men mustered on deck in their boat team. It took two hours to embark the entire force of 282 men who went ashore. And at 0215, the boats cast off for the designated landing beach, a mile and a half north of the actual village. The four divisions made their landing under a moonless night sky, heavy surf. The division of marines formed up at the head of the column, and as the sun began to rise over the mountains onto the equatorial beach, the formation headed off towards the village. Unknown to the Americans, though, the village of Kuala Batu had recently begun a small war with several nearby villages, which meant that the village was on high alert and fully armed. And so when the column approached the village, the lead men were spotted by a man who dashed off through the underbrush towards the village. The officers realized that their element of surprise was gone, and the column broke off towards each of their assigned forts and locations as they came under fire from the forts, 
which slowed their advance and ruined any chance to surround the village. So at 0515, the battle commenced, and aboard the Potomac, the officer of the watch heard the gunfire, hauled down the Danish colors, hauled up the stars and stripes, and the crew from offshore did their best trying to discern what was happening on shore amid the gunfire. The divisions ashore slowly moved under fire to their assigned locations near the rear of the village and surrounding some of the forts. Using a small field cannon they had brought ashore, sailors and marines blew through the main fort's palisade walls and rushed into the breach, killing a handful of the defenders, including the Raja Po Muhammad, who had been identified as the chief responsible for the massacre of the French ship's crew. The fort's defenders reorganized themselves after the initial retreat from the fort, and from the inner walls, shot and killed Seaman William Smith and injured two other men. Sailors and Marines inside the fort pulled back, setting fire to the fort as they retreated, and leaving the Potomac's small gunboat with their 12-pound bow cannon to fire into the fort from close range. Some of the sailors and Marines posted at the fort's entrance, while the others spread out to attack the other forts and participate in the ongoing skirmish in the village. When the sailors and marines finally restormed the fort, Lieutenant Shubrick reported that so tenaciously did the enemy cling to their positions that it was not until nearly all of them were destroyed that we could carry the fort. The American colors were then hoisted with three hearty cheers. After capturing the fort, though, the Americans discovered a trail of gunpowder leading to the inner magazine. Fearing that this was only one of many traps, Lieutenant Shubrick ordered his men back out of the fort and into the greater conflict which at this point devolved into a general hand-to-hand -hand melee. Flames began to slowly spread in the village, and the marines began to pursue fleeing men into the jungle at the edge of the village. With the battle basically over, a few of the sailors began to opportunistically loot the village, and seeing this looting and the rising tide and the possibility of a counterattack or just plain pot shots coming from the jungle, Lieutenant Shubrick ordered his men back to the boats, with the marines providing a defensive perimeter, while the dead and the wounded were loaded aboard. When the rest of the landing boats were loaded, sailors pulled hard under cannon fire from a remaining small fort, which had not fallen, back to the Potomac. By 10 o'clock, the whole landing force had returned safely to the Potomac, which had not been able to approach the village too closely due to its draft. The two dead were given a full burial at sea, and the 11 wounded were treated by the ship's surgeon. The Potomac's guns and sails were returned to full fighting form. There was no point in hiding now. Now was time to negotiate with the full force of American arms on display. Lieutenant Schubert guessed in his memoirs that over 150 Sumatrans had died fighting, including the women and children at the village. The Americans captured a number of small arms and one small brass field piece from the fort and spiked all the cans that they couldn't take with them and set fire to the village and the fishing boats in the harbor on their way out. But Downers wasn't done. Next morning, on the anniversary of the original attack on the friendship, Lookout saw four men in a canoe approaching the Potomac. One of the men was Poe Adam, who was the well-known local trader who had helped the Americans escape from the initial attack. For his help last year, Poe Adam had been stripped of rank and wealth, but was now very happy to see the Americans, and more than happy to serve as a translator and local intermediary for Commodore Downes. Poe Adam explained that the locals had doubted that the United States had a navy, and thus considered American merchantmen defenseless and fair game. 
Determined to drive home the message that this was not the case, Commodore Downus decided to use the remaining fort, which had fired on American small boats as they rode away from the village, as an example of American firepower. Commodore Downus brought the ship to battle quarters and inched the Potomac in closer to the offending fort. The Potomac dropped her anchor a mile from the shore, and Downus ordered the guns to open fire. The crew kept up a slow, steady fire for an hour, before pausing to see if a surrender would be forthcoming. In the meantime, villagers from neighboring villages up and down the coast had assembled to watch the destruction unfold because I guess there was nothing better on TV. Ten minutes after the Potomac stopped firing, the white flag rose over the top of the fort. Under the loaded and still-ready guns of the Potomac, a small negotiating delegation with Poe Adam as the interpreter made its way to the surrendering fort. At the fort, three men confessed the village's involvement with piracy and asked for forgiveness and mercy. Downes would later write that the delegation, quote, begged that I would grant them peace. Downes explained to the remaining men the reason America had sent the Potomac to their village and told them that he was satisfied that his mission to bring the attackers of the friendship to justice was complete. He agreed to maintain peace with Kualabatu and, quote, at the same time, I assured him that if forbearance should not be exercised thereafter from committed piracies and murders upon American citizens, other ships of war be dispatched to inflict upon them further punishment. With the matter at Kualabatu finished, Commodore Downes began to show the flag at nearby villages pulling in for resupply and to reinforce the message that America could, in fact, project power when she chose to do so. And in the face of such overwhelming local force, the Americans found that the Sumatrans were remarkably friendly and eager to assure the American warship that they harbored nothing but the utmost respect for American sovereignty and the ability of American merchantmen to trade freely and unmolested. From there, Commodore Downes went on to execute his original, broader diplomatic mission as the Commodore of the Pacific Squadron for the next two years. But back in the United States, the first news of the action at Kuala Batu arrived in July. Anonymous reports alleged that there had been no attempt at negotiation before the American crew massacred the village. Without any official reports or other sources of information, this was the prevailing narrative, and the public reacted angrily and this set off a political firestorm in Washington, D.C., where the prospect of a far-flung war and the massacre of women and children was understandably unpopular. Congress demanded answers, but given that there was no official answer to give, and the Potomac is not expected to return to the United States for two years, all Andrew Jackson could do was speculate and turn over copies of the orders that he had given Commodore Downes, which did explicitly order the Commodore to do his best to negotiate before resorting to violence. Andrew Jackson was an old army general, and he knew the realities of the world and how commanders in the field had wide discretion how they carried out their orders. But because he was also a canny political operator, he had politically protected himself with the orders to negotiate first, probably understanding full well that there was a good chance violence would be the ultimate answer to this particular problem. But he knew that he could avoid the political backlash if he had the proof that he had not encouraged this particular solution. And so in public and before Congress, Andrew Jackson stood behind Commodore Downes after letters from Downes came back explaining the context of the battle. I personally only think the explanation is semi-satisfying. Could Downes have tried harder to negotiate? You know, almost certainly. 
One option after having been received in such a hostile manner at the beach could have been to unveil the full might of the Potomac and use her to induce negotiation. But on the other hand, he was in a hard situation. In his letters, Downes explains that he thought that if that were to happen, the locals would simply melt away into the jungle and wait him out, as he had been warned about by the British. His ship was already low on supplies, and he couldn't linger indefinitely. He also had been ordered to bring the individuals responsible for leading the massacre of the friendship to justice, and that would have been virtually impossible without surrounding the village, as his original plan had called for. And that once the plan was in motion, on the ground, the fighting had evolved with the usual chaos of battle, which was outside of his control. But regardless, the end result of the first Sumatran expedition was pretty darn effective. Trade volumes between Salem and the West Indies increased over the course of the next few years. And one sailor claimed that, quote, along the whole Pepper Coast since the visit of the Potomac, a remarkable change has taken place in the deportment of the natives. It was seven years before American traders were the victims of another successful attack by pirates along the northwest coast of Sumatra. All of which explains why, perhaps to the sharp-eared listener, this episode is titled The First Sumatran Expedition. Until next time, you can shoot me an email at usnavalhistorypodcast at gmail.com. Rate, subscribe, share it, all the usual stuff. And of course, fair winds and following seas. Some rum, smell some spice, and free up your mind.